Welcome to Not Quite Right. My name's Ed. And I'm Amanda. This is the second of a series of interviews we recorded at the Words on the Waves Writers Festival. We spoke with Jock Sarong, who is the author of several novels, including The Rules of Backyard Cricket and his latest novel, The Settlement. In this interview, we chat with Jock about surfing, his career in law and the fascinating history of the Ferno Islands. What I really liked about talking with Jock is how much it reminded me of my dad. So my dad was really interested in Australian history and when he died, he had already sort of started researching a fictionalised novel that he wanted to write about some early Australian bushrangers. So it was really cool talking to Jock about, I guess, how he fictionalised some of these true events that happened in Australia. And he had some good advice for me, which I loved. Yeah, and I really enjoyed hearing about the history of the Ferno Islands, which is where his novel, The Settlement, is set. So without any further ado, here's our interview with Jock Sarong. Okay, we're here with Jock Sarong. How are you? Good, Ed. Good, thanks, mate. That's good. What brings you here to uh, the Words here on the Waves? Words on the Waves. And I'm talking, I talked yesterday about writing Australian frontier history. And then this morning, I'm talking about sports with Inga Simpson and Malcolm Knox. So it's an interesting combination of I know. interests there. Yeah, sport and frontier Australia. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it stems – probably the sport thing goes back to a novel I wrote about eight years ago called The Rules of Backyard Cricket, mm-hmm. which looked at sporting celebrity and, and the media and cricket. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about your background then. How did you get into writing? Yeah, I, well, I, I had always wanted to be a writer as a kid and I got very sidetracked around the end of school and wound up going off and doing a law degree and being a lawyer for 17 years. Um, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> yeah, it was an enormous wrong turn. Um, and, and in the latter parts of that career, I was more and more interested in going back to writing and started writing in the surfing media. Mm-hmm. And I did years of that um, and it gradually built up momentum and I started writing bits of fiction and I think eventually I just reached a point where I wanted to give the writing a chance. I could have kept doing it alongside the legal career, but I was using up all my leave and all my nights and weekends. And um, I, I really got to a point where there was a choice to make and uh, decided to go that way. I think to everybody's shock, including my own. I can definitely sympathise with wanting to get out of your day job and follow your, follow your dreams. Um, and so surfing has been a big part of your life. You're the editor of the Great Ocean Quarterly. So tell us about that. Yeah, so it's not so much a surfing magazine, but it, I guess its DNA comes from the surfing media. Um, that's a partnership with two other guys called Mick Sowry and Mark Willis, and it's a big, heavy journal. It's very expensively made, and it's about creative people and their responses to the ocean. So um, we would run stories about things like the science of corals and people's poems and photography and uh, fiction all built around the ocean and really, really lovely photography. Um, So it was a quarterly. We started out for a couple of years doing it every three months and um, it nearly killed us. And these (laughs) days we sort of, we do an issue when we're all free and we've got some time. So we're doing one this year uh, about the concept of the Great Southern Reef, which is this scientific idea that all of the cool temperate reefs from Kalbarri in the west all the way around the bottom to the Tweed in the east mm-hmm. are all one biological system, Okay, um, which is where the thinking is sort of going, a bit like the Great Barrier Reef. Yep. So we'll base this issue around that concept and try to get all the stories to, to reference it somehow. So the science interests you as well? 
Yeah, it does. Or has that come more from the other guys that you partner with and your the artistic side? Oh, no, on the words. The way we had divvied it up was that Mark is the calculator, um, <laughs> mix the paintbrush and I'm the pen. Okay, great. <laughs> and that seems Combo. to work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, no, I, I'm really interested in reading the science and it's often the best stuff that we run, um, but but as to any personal competency, zero. <laughs> <laughs> well, you must be gaining it over time as you read it. I bit, guess that's right. A bit yeah. of knowledge. That's what we're all trying to do, isn't it? And I would think too, you talked about your legal career being, you know, a wrong turn, but I imagine that being a lawyer and what type of lawyer were you, what were you? Oh, I did lots of things. I was principally a litigator and mostly in crime. Okay. Um, I worked in courts as a barrister for a number of years. Um, I did native title out in the West Australian desert. Um, I so worked with asylum seekers. The castle then. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> was that you that we saw in that bit, documentary? <laughs> the that most lawyers, I think, relate to is the tantrum about the photocopier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just thinking that that career in law must have taught you how to write very clearly. Yes, it, it, you're quite right. There are some lasting benefits that you take out of it. And one of them is this notion of this horrible idea of selling six-minute units. Mm. I think it imprints on you this urgency about making your time count. Yeah, right. And not just letting the wheels spin. Um, yes, it, there, there's a, a discipline about language that mm. is very useful. Mm. Like word choice as well, like having the exact right word that you need. Do you find that that's... Yes, yes. And, and something of a detachment from the words themselves so that you leave the person behind and concentrate on what the voice is and what the audience is. That's what you're right. doing as a lawyer a lot of the time mm-hmm. is detaching yourself from what you're talking about. Mm. And, and I think that applies equally in writing fiction. Yeah. And so your latest novel is called The Settlement? Yes. Yeah, so yeah. tell us about that. So The Settlement is um, the third of a trilogy and these three books are about a group of islands in Bass Strait called the Ferno Islands. Yeah. Ferno Islands are the eastern side of Bass Strait, so they kind of connect eastern Victoria to Tasmania, and they went through this very um, remarkable period between 1797 and 1847, this 50-year window, where a whole lot of really important things happened in Australian invasion, colonisation, settlement, and I wanted to talk about that history, which is not often discussed or known by people. And for me, the best way to do that was in fiction. So uh, I I told three stories about that 50-year period ending at 1847. It's quite fascinating. Is that King Island? And oh, that's, that's the other side. That's the, yeah, side that's the west side. Yeah, you don't hear much about those um, islands, but that is an interesting part of colonial history. I mean, Tasmania was quite central to, uh, yes. I guess, Australia back in those Yeah, you're right. Times. And like all history, it tends to be written by the people who have the prominence and the authority and the education to describe what's going on around mm-hmm. them. Yeah. which means that you get a very slanted account of things. And that's true all over the continent, yeah. um, particularly true in Bass Strait because the people, the white people who were going in there in that period were often, they were ticket of leave convicts, they were escaped convicts, um, they were people who were living extremely hard, violent lives and they didn't want to document themselves. Mm. They had no interest in <laughs> Also that. a good point, yeah. yeah. So it means that in a lot of ways you're having to extrapolate a story from a handful of letters or one mm. diary, mm. as the case may be. Um, but that that challenge is great too because you've got a little dram of evidence and mm. then it takes a whole lot of imagination. Mm. Mm. And so what got you interested in that era and that place? Are you from? Well, I'm from Western Victoria, so I'm more the King Island side of the strait, but um, I've spent a lot of my adult life just out of coincidence going to and from Flinders Island, which is one of the Furneaux Islands 
Um, and so way back in, in the middle of my legal career, or in fact, at the start of my legal career, I was going there at, with no sense of looking at it as a writer. But as years have gone on and, and I've been publishing books, that's always been beckoning that, that this was a story that you mm. could tell. Because it's that classic situation of a beautiful place that you have a sense has a dark history, that, that just under the surface of all this staggering physical beauty is this very dark story. Probably true of the whole country of Australia, really, Absolutely. isn't it? I mean, look at Sydney Harbour. It's, there are so many dark stories under that beautiful surface. It's, yeah. Mm. So um, it's a trilogy. It's a trilogy. It started out, I think the idea initially was that it was a novel because it was a 50-year period and I thought you could almost cover this in one character's lifetime. And almost the minute I started writing, that went out the window because there was so much to talk about. Mm. The, the first of the three books is Preservation, which is about a shipwreck and a rescue. And there was a diary that kind of describes that situation that I had to work with. Mm -hmm. Then the the middle book, which is called The Burning Island, is about the sealers who came into these islands after the rescue. And that became a very large story for one reason and another. And then there's the settlement about the Waibalina settlement, which Mm -hmm. is where George Augustus Robinson took the Tasmanian Aborigines when they were sort of driven out of Tasmania by settlers. Mm -hmm. So um, each of those stories took on a life of its own and and Mm -hmm. very quickly it was much more than you could ever cram in one book. Sounds like you have an amazing capacity for imagination. If you were taking these small little excerpts from Mm -hmm. diaries and what other research did you have that fed into these stories? Well, a lot of it, I'm I'm actually not a great researcher. Um, A lot of it is physical experience, is going and walking the ground and trying to get the ground to talk to you, which is what we all do as writers. Yeah. So the, the settlement at Waibalina now is essentially just a few bricks in a paddock. Mm-hmm. Um, there's still a chapel there and there's still a cemetery there, but there were a whole lot of buildings and, and they're just tiny, tiny traces in the grass. Mm-hmm. And when you walk around it, you get this very powerful feeling of something having been there mm-hmm. and people having been there and all this sadness. Um, but you do have to work very hard at some deep level to conjure it Mm. Um, and that for me was the probably the most important part of the process. Yeah. So there's George Augustus Robinson's diary, which is enormous. Okay. And he describes everything, every tiny Thanks, detail George. every day. <laughs> <laughs> um, but most of the time he's lying. You know? Oh, so, really? Okay. Yeah. So you you walk the ground trying to find another version of it. Right. Aside from but the two things work well together. So when you say lying, what does that mean exactly? Like trying to sugarcoat the truth or straight up just? Yeah. So Robinson was, um, he was initially a bricklayer and then he was a missionary and um, he sort of claimed in this messianic way that he could stop the genocide of the Tasmanian Aboriginal people, of the Palawa and Pakana people, and that he would take them somewhere safe. And, And his idea of somewhere safe was this island. Um, and it very quickly started to fail and, and people started dying. And in the end, hundreds of people died, yes. basically of respiratory diseases. And he can see it all happening before him. And, and very quickly, he's moving from being the saviour to being what he saw as the last witness to this race that would be extinct. Yeah. Wow. So his writing is all about justifying those positions. When he's the saviour, he talks about his amazing achievements when people are dying in their dozens, he's talking about how sad it is and how important it is to collect evidence. Mm. Um, and, and a lot of that is just untruths. Mm. It's, it's like any political writing. It's there to create a legacy for posterity, but it's not the objective truth. And you're there to just 
pull away all the facade and just interrogate it a bit and see what was really happening. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And and if you can if you can get the balance right, you can set a paragraph of his words against a piece of landscape and against a bit of imagination and you can point up the hypocrisy of the words, yeah. which I guess is a lot of what the novel's trying to do. Fascinating. So um, you've completed the trilogy. Are you still looking to write in the same vein, colonial history, or are you? No. No. I, <laughs> so that, that's been, I guess, seven or eight years of my life and um, the three books would be a 1,000 pages all up and that. The, the rigor of that research and the 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 careful cultural checking with people and um, that feeling of responsibility for mm-hmm. talking about history mm-hmm. that's all been extremely hard work and so I've gone off I've written another novel since and just this time tried really hard to surely drive it with imagination just to think just up having story. fun yeah, yeah yeah great and, and I think you can. You know, when you are very wedded to a factual story, you can forget that fiction is about just making stuff up. <laughs> and it's, it's so liberating to go back to that notion. Yeah. So do you want to tell us a bit about what this new book's about? Well, it's, although I said I've written it, it's still early stages in the sense that I, I've done, I suppose, three drafts and there could be five or six or seven drafts in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a it's a novel about uh, a paddle steamer that <laughs> comes from. It sounds ridiculous the minute I start saying this. They <laughs> always do. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, don't they? Yeah. So, um, a shipment of timber that is brought from Scotland to Australia uh, that never happened in okay. about 1920, and a man builds a paddle steamer in Melbourne, and everything turns to disaster from there. Sounds great. <laughs> um, I promise it's more interesting than I'm pitching it. I've got to work on that. <laughs> no, I, I feel like when you – I have the same problem when I try and explain what my story's about. It's like it's very vulnerable, you know, to try and explain yes. my imagination, this rubbish that I just came up with myself. <laughs> um, how do I present that to make that interesting to someone else, you know? Yeah. And I think it always is more interesting than maybe we think it is. You yeah, know? and we're, all, we're always so unfair to ourselves – when we try to compress everything into elevator pitches all exactly, the time. Exactly, yeah. Because some things simply require the reader to sit down and read it. That's and exactly right. Nothing else is actually going to suffice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But you've got to pitch things. That's how it all works. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> well, you've got to talk in a few minutes, so we'll, we'll let you go. And thanks for speaking with us. Thank you both. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to Not Quite Right. If you'd like to reach us via email or follow us on social media, you can find all the links on our website, notquiterightpodcast.com. That's W-R-I-T-E. And if you enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcasting app. Something doesn't seem quite right.